Guys, I don't know if you've enjoyed this series as much as I have, but it's been a, a joy to dive deep into some of these stories and just learn from them and appreciate them. And the story of Ruth has just all the makings of a great story. It's on one level, it's a love story. Um, it's also a, a hero story, right? A story of redemption. Um, and it's one of the few stories in scripture, one of the few books, passages that's written from the perspective of a female. Um, and so that's another thing we can enjoy about this story, where the females are the main characters, makes it pretty unique. But it's just a um, fantastic story. I'd encourage you if, you, if you've not done so, to just read the whole book of Ruth start to finish, right? Um, chapter one, all the way through chapter four. It's only four chapters. Um, I think you'd be blessed by that. I think it would be... Um, just a great thing to just appreciate it from start to finish like that. So let's uh, talk about the setting a little bit. This book takes place in the time of Judges. So on kind of a, if you have a biblical timeline in your head, right, uh, during the time of Judges, Israel's coming to the land that God has promised them. They've inhabited it, um, but they have no king. And so one of the, one of the things that, phrases that's repeated a lot in the book of Judges is this, at that time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, if you, if you read the book of Judges start to finish, you're going to see what's called this sin cycle. Um, that God would bless his people. Um, they would return to him. They would cling to him. They would worship him and acknowledge him and trust him. And because of that, he would bless them. But the more God blessed them, the more comfortable they would often get. And they would start to think, yeah, we kind of got this. Things are good. We're going to start going our own way, doing our own thing, just enjoying all the luxury we have because of God's blessing, and they would forget God um, in, in their abundance of wealth and whatever prosperity. And then God would bring punishment, some kind of discipline to them to kind of get their attention, to turn their eyes back to him. Then they would repent, right? And then God would bring blessing to them again. And then they would get comfortable and forget God. And then it just the cycle just kind of repeats itself. And so this story takes place um, in the middle of one of those valleys, right, where Seemingly, God has brought discipline to Israel for their lack of faithfulness, and there's a famine in the land. And because there's a famine, this family, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, decide to leave God's promised land and go to Moab. And so Moab was a country that was somewhat enemies of Israel. They weren't like the type of enemies that Israel just hated that God had commanded them to wipe out or anything like that. But nonetheless, um, they were the ones that hired Balaam to curse Israel when they were coming into the promised land. They harassed Israel on multiple occasions. They weren't the worst of enemies, but they were enemies nonetheless. Um, and so Ruth and they, or sorry, um, Naomi and Limelech, when they decide to leave Israel and go live in Moab, we need to understand at the beginning of the story, that is an act of faithlessness and rebellion on their part. And it's different for you and I because of our cultural lens, right? Like, you and I can move to, from Texas to Tennessee and not feel like we're abandoning God or his promises or anything. Well, some of you may feel like that's an abandonment. But in general, like geographically, we can move from one place to another and not feel like God has tied us or called us to a specific region. We can serve him just as faithfully in Oregon as we could in Oklahoma. But it wasn't so at this time. you got to think, 
the context, right? This was the land and the people God had given them as their inheritance. God had commanded them to go into this specific land, to occupy it, to live there, right? That their sons and daughters would marry other Israelites and not foreigners who would bring in other gods and corrupt their their worship and their way of life, right? They were supposed to stay in Israel. And so just because things had gotten hard and there was a lack of food was not an excuse or a reason. In fact, it'd be similar to when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, and they would get hungry, and they would grumble, and they would have a lack of faith in God's provision. We should see this story through the same lens that when Elimelech and Naomi left to go to Moab, it was an act of turning away from the Lord's promises, not trusting his faithfulness, not being with his people, walking away from God's people and his promises. And so that happens. They go there. They live in Moab for about 10 years, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons. And in those 10 years, a few things happen. We see um, two weddings, both the sons get married, and three funerals. Elimelech dies, and their two sons die. So all that's left at this point is Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law. And so Naomi decides, look, there's nothing here for me anymore. You know, my husband's dead, my two sons are dead, this isn't my people. And she's heard news that there is now food back in Bethlehem, right, that things are better there now. So she's like, I'm going to go back. And so we should understand this decision for her to go back, almost like the story of the prodigal son, right, that she has walked away in faithlessness and in rebellion, and now she's returning back to the people and the land that God has provided for her and called her to live in. But she also understands that for her two daughters-in-law, that's not a great thing, right? They would be moving into a people that's not their people, into a land that's not their own. So she tells them, hey, I'm going back. I hate that my disobedience has brought this negative thing with you guys, that now you are both widows. Stay here and go marry someone from among your people. That's the best thing for you. And it says that both of them are like, no, we want to be with you. And then Naomi begins to reason with them and say, look, guys, how's that going to work? Are you going to wait on me to have more kids and then, and then marry the sons when you're 50 and they're 20? How's this going to work? Stay here. This is the best thing for you. That's in your best interest. And then there's this beautiful language here used that it says, Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, kissed her like a kiss goodbye, right? But then it says, Ruth clung to her, right? Ruth was like, I am not leaving you. And then she goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. So then it says that they go back to Bethlehem, the town Naomi was from, and it says the whole town was stirred up, right? You can imagine, no one has seen Naomi or Elimelech in 10 years. They probably don't even know that Elimelech has died or that their sons have died. They just know Naomi shows up and she's got this Moabite woman with her. So probably they put two and two together. Somehow they figure it out, but it says the whole town was stirred up of who, who is this? And then when they say to her, like, you're Naomi, right? And she goes, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The reason for that is her name Naomi means pleasant, but the name Mara means bitter. And she says, the Lord has sent me away full, but I have come back empty. So she sees all of these deaths as God's discipline and God's curse upon her for her disobedience, that God was disciplining her to call her back to himself through these events. So things are very dismal for Naomi and Ruth, but they do have each other. 
and that's about all they have. And then this other character enters into the story. His name is Boaz. What we know about Boaz is that he's a relative of Elimelech. And so Elimelech, um, he was probably a cousin or maybe even an uncle to him. He was not an immediate relative, but some sort of distant relative. And we know that he was a landowner. And he's presented as a very kind and a very godly man, a man of great character in this story. And so Ruth begins to, in order to kind of scrap out a living for them, she begins to collect the leftovers of their harvest. So they're harvesting barley at the time, and um, Boaz's workers would go through the field, and they would heap up big piles of harvest. And then beggars like Ruth were allowed to come in behind them and just pick up the little pieces that were left on the ground that the harvesters didn't pick up. Now, I've actually know a little bit about what this is like. When I grew up, my dad was a crop farmer, and lots of my friends were crop farmers too. I remember one day I was about 10, and um, I guess me and my buddy, buddies Matt and Chris, we just really wanted to go ride the combine or whatever, right? And so his dad was leaving. It was harvest time, corn harvest. So we go with him. We're riding in the cab with him for a while. And looking back on it, I think we were probably irritating him. I think he just kind of came up with something for us to do. So there was this path, had like a 20, 25-foot header where he had harvested the corn, right? The combine had come through. And he goes, hey, y'all come behind there and y'all pile up all the ears of corn that didn't get picked up. So of course we made a game out of it, you know? Like two of us would be picking them up and one of us would be here manning the hill and catching them and making a big pile, you know? So we'd make these four or five piles of corn. It was this much. And the whole time we thought we were, man, we were really helping, right? We were trying to really, you know, be a part of this thing. And then when you're done, you look at these couple piles, And then you look over here at the stuff that hasn't been harvested yet, and you're like, this thing doesn't amount to a hill of corn, right? I mean, this is like, this is beyond like, um, what's the word, Uh, insignificant, right? This is like not actually making a difference. But I thought, you know, if someone were really hungry, right, they could come through there and pick that corn up, and they would have corn for, you know, months if they wanted, right? Um, And so to a beggar, right, what was left behind might be significant, right? But to someone like Boaz, who owned the field and had hired hands going and making big stacks of the crop, it wasn't a big deal. But the problem was, for beggars to come into a field like that, that were being worked by a lot of young men, is that they were very vulnerable, if you catch my drift there, right? Like, they were open to abuse and all kinds of things that could happen to them in that situation, because no one cared about the beggars, right? Whatever happened to them happened. They were just fortunate to be able to get some free food. So Boaz sees what's going on with Ruth, and he said, hey, stay in my fields. Don't go to other fields where that kind of stuff may happen. You stay here. In fact, he tells his workers, if, if, uh, if, if Ruth wants, she can go and, and pick grain from the piles you guys have stacked up so she doesn't have to scrape what's left over from the ground. So he's very, very kind to them, and Ruth is confused by this. She's like, why is this guy extending such kindness to me, a foreigner? And when she asked that, Boaz says this. But Boaz, this is uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz essentially says to Ruth, like, hey, you may not realize this, but in following Naomi and being loyal to her, you have placed yourself 
within the people and under the protection of the one true and almighty God. And that is a very good thing for you. And I want to be gracious and hospitable towards you because of this kindness you've shown to our people. So then Ruth goes home. She tells Naomi about all that happened. And Naomi's like, that's awesome. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to ask him to marry you. Seems like a logical thing to do, right? But at this point, Ruth and Boaz were like, we were beggars, right? And they didn't have a man in their life to help take care of them, which is even a bigger deal then, obviously, than it is now. Um, So they were beggars. They had no more family legacy. The only thing they had was a field that was still in their family to sell. And so what Boaz represented was not just a kind man letting them glean, but he had the ability to be what's called a kinsman redeemer. Someone in the family that would say, hey, you know what, I'm going to carry on um, that family member's name because Elimelech had died. Someone in his family's job, preferably his brother, someone close to him, would then take in his widow, right, and then try to carry on the family line, the family name through that widow. Um, And if they had any land, that person would redeem that land, would basically buy it from them, take care of them, provide for them, and take that land as his own inheritance and steward it until um, the offspring of that, that family would come to take ownership of it. So, they're asked, so she basically asks, um, asks Boaz to do that. And the way she does that is after the harvest one night, he's, he's wiped out. They've probably been working late into the night at harvest time. It says he's leaning against a heap of grain, right? He's just basically kind of falling asleep. Um, they they, they um, were drinking that night, so he's probably sacked out pretty good, right? And so then you see this picture of Ruth coming in and laying at his feet and just laying there. And then he, he wakes up the next morning and he's like, whoa, who is this? What are you doing here? Probably it's dark. He doesn't see her. He doesn't recognize her. Um, and Ruth, and he says this in Ruth 3, 9, he says, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And so I want to put these two verses side by side so you can see them up on the screen, or rather one on top of the other. Um, but notice that when, when, you know, when Ruth asks, why are you doing this for me? And Boaz ans- answers her. Um, he basically says this idea that, you know, the Lord be pay you for what you've done, for will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose wings you have come to, whose, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then when Boaz, or sorry, again, the name's confused. Let's start the story. So Ruth goes to Boaz and asks ask him to marry her. She basically says the same language back to him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So she's almost asking him to put his money where his mouth is, right? That you're saying God has provided for me, is protecting me. Well, take that to the next level. Would you be even more gracious and take me under your wing and marry me. And Boaz says, yes, but, because he's an honest and upright man, he said, there's another relative of Elimelech's that's closer than me. Likely what's going on here is that Boaz was Elimelech's cousin or uncle or something like that. But Elimelech had a brother, and it would be the brother's first right, right? He had dibs on that land to redeem it for himself first. So Boaz says, I'm going to do the respectful thing. I'm going to go to that person who's closer and give him the opportunity. And if he takes it, hey, great for you. You'll be under his care and protection. If not, yeah, then I will, I will follow through with this. So he goes to the city gates. 
And he calls the man aside when he's walking by. And it says he gathers the elders so that there's witnesses to have this conversation just in case there's any confusion later on. And he tells this guy, it's, it's interesting because the guy's name is not even mentioned here. He's just, he's just that one guy, right? Um, and he tells the guy, hey, you know, you know Naomi has come back. You know that her family owns this field. Someone needs to redeem this field. So that would essentially mean taking Naomi in, taking the field for himself. And assumingly at this point, right, Naomi has no sons, right, and no you know, no family, and so he would basically just get the field for the price, increase his own inheritance, so the guy says, yeah, that sounds great, um, I'll take it. And then Boaz says, oh yeah, there's, there's one more thing. If you take the field, you get Ruth too. And we don't know why the guy said no to that. I mean, there's several reasons. It could be because Ruth was a Moabite, and he was like, uh-uh, I ain't doing that, you know, I'm not taking any Moabite into my family. It could be because it meant that if he took Ruth in, the expectation would be because she's still of childbearing age, that he would have children with Ruth, and that land would eventually pass down to her children. In which case, which was likely the case, it would actually be harder for him, right? It would mean a loss for him rather than a gain to redeem that field because he would have to pay for it, but he wouldn't get to keep it. He wouldn't get to pass it down to his own sons and daughters in his family that he had at the time. He would be extending his family, taking on a couple more mouths to feed, buying the field, only to pass it on to Ruth's children. So he says no, and Boaz says, great. So Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a son. Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, they name the son Obed, and the people in the village basically come to Ruth to celebrate that she's had a son and to celebrate with Naomi that she's had a grandson, and this is what they say. He shall be to you, this grandson Obed to Naomi, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So you can see that Ruth has developed this great reputation among Naomi in that circle, right? That they've said like, that, yeah, we know it's hard in the moment that you don't have any sons, that your sons died, but God has given you this amazing woman, Ruth, and she, is she not better than seven sons because she is so great and kind to you? And she's given you a grandson. And what that meant was that Elimelech was not the end of the family line, that through, um, through Ruth, Elimelech is now like he is having children, like his family line is continuing And so this winds up being this great story, and then what we find out is probably the reason this story was told, right, was that this Obed would be the father of Jesse, who would then be the father of King David. And so the reason this story is told in Scripture is because this is part of the lineage of King David, who would eventually be an ancestor of the Messiah, Jesus. So it's this fantastic story of kindness and redemption and things like this. And so what I want to do now is walk back through it and talk about the things this story celebrates. And it's, you know, often when we talk about scripture, we talk about like lessons, like what this story teaches us. And to be sure, we can learn from this story, but it's not so much that the story is teaching something as the story is celebrating certain things about God and his people and the history of Israel. And the first of those things is the celebration of kindness, We see the word kindness so often in this book because it's just a virtue that's celebrated and rewarded. 
we see Naomi's kindness that despite Naomi's lack of faith, nonetheless, she is portrayed as a very, very kind individual, right? I mean, let's, let's just be honest, right? How many of you guys that in here are so fond of your mother-in-law because of her kindness to you? That if something were to happen to the rest of your family, you would cling to her and say, your people will be my people and your God will be my God, right? Just how Naomi's daughter-in-laws treat her is a testament to she had just some very extreme, almost otherworldly kindness towards them. And that her reputation of her kindness overshadowed her race, right? Um, when we talk about, sorry, switching gears here, let's talk about Ruth for a second. Ruth's kindness and loyalty towards Naomi was so strong that it overshadowed her race. That you would think that when this Moabite woman came back to Israel, she would be shunned, right? People would kind of look down upon them with shame and things like that. But instead, Ruth makes this great reputation for herself because she is so kind and loyal that rather than staying and looking out for what's best for herself, which would be to find a husband and things like that, instead she chooses to be faithful to to Naomi, probably thinking that she would just remain a widow the rest of her life, and that she would go pick up the scraps in the field to provide for herself in Naomi. So we see a ton of kindness displayed in Ruth through this. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, he's talking about Ruth, and he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, because you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, rather poor or rich. So Boaz basically acknowledges that. Most likely Boaz is a lot older than Ruth. And he says, blessed be you because you've set your own interests aside to provide for Naomi in that you've come to me and asked me to marry you even though I'm an old man and you could have probably had any man that you wanted back in your own country. So Ruth is probably the, the most key component when we talk about a celebration of kindness. But we needn't overlook Boaz's kindness either. In fact, Boaz is one of the very few people in Scripture who's not presented with any character flaws. Notice most times there's a main character in a story of Scripture. It's like, yeah, he was a great guy, but, right? There's always some caveat there just to remind us that he wasn't perfect, that he was a sinner. And while we don't think that Boaz was perfect, clearly he's presented in such a way that he's just a simply a great, upright, and godly man who chooses to set his own interest aside and, and take this family in for the sake of redeeming Elimelech's name and his inheritance. Um, so he's presented as this guy who's very kind, almost without flaws, that he's kind of an embodiment of God's kindness in the story. Um, it's interesting, too, that the brother of Elimelech, or whoever it was that had first right to that inheritance, right? He basically said, look, if I take on Ruth in this field... Look, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to inhibit um, my name and my reputation. And through doing that, one, that guy's name isn't even mentioned. And if you read the story, it's like the author goes to great lengths to avoid mentioning his name. Um, and so the fact that he tried to do all these things to protect his legacy, in the end, he lost it. And he missed out on being a, uh, um, part of the Messiah's legacy. Elimel- or, sorry, Boaz, on the other hand, chooses to set aside what will be best for himself, not looking to his own interest, but to the interest of others, and because of that, finds himself in the lineage of the Messiah. So Boaz's kindness is very much celebrated here. And then lastly, we see a celebration of God's sovereignty in this. 
um, we see that God's kindness is extended through the kindness of others. There's this really interesting verse, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, and it says this, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaking the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And the context of this is, it's right after Ruth has come back and told Naomi, Hey, this guy Boaz is letting me glean in his field. And Naomi says, may he be blessed by the Lord. And it says, whose kindness has not forsaken living in the dead. And it's almost as if that who's right there, whose kindness, is just real ambiguous. Is, is it talking about the kindness of Boaz or is it talking about the kindness of the Lord? And I think that, that ambiguity is intentional there because it's, it's one and the same, right? That while this is a story about Boaz's kindness and Ruth's kindness, it's really a story about God's provision for Naomi, through these different people, he has brought into her life, despite the fact that she had turned from God, that God provided for her through his kindness. So God's hand is at work in the background all throughout this story. And secondly, it's the story that God was orchestrating the Messiah's lineage. Ruth chapter 4 verse 11 says, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, this is the woman speaking to Naomi about Ruth, right? The woman coming to her house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So they're essentially saying, when Ruth had this son, may God use this son of Ruth, who's part of your lineage, to build up the house of Israel. Right? And so Israel would look at that verse and go, man, these ladies didn't know it, but they were like essentially prophesying about the significance of this child, Obed, who would father Jesse, who would father King David. May the Lord use him to build up the house of Israel indeed, right? Through him came our king who did great things for us. And we on this side of the cross would look at it and go, how much more so is that true that through this man Obed eventually came the Messiah, Jesus, that God clearly used Jesus to, to put it lightly, build up and redeem the house of Israel. And it's a reminder, too, that, you know, that God was always about extending his blessing to the Gentiles. Look, look for a second with me just at the lineage of Jesus. Right, last week we looked at one of the ancestors of Jesus was the prostitute Rahab. And this week it's the Moabite Ruth. Right, like that sometimes we think of Jesus as being of this pure Israelite blood, which is not the case at all, right? That, that his, lineage is, his lineage is just like full of Gentiles who'd come to be a part of God's people being grafted in. I think that was an indication to Israel through this, that through this Messiah, God was going to do something to extend his grace, not just to the Israelites who follow God faithfully and perfectly, but to Gentiles and to people like you and I who were sinners who did not fear the Lord. And then thirdly, this passage is a celebration of redemption. Right? It's a celebration of God through Boaz bringing redemption to Naomi and her late husband Elimelech, that that once was lost to her has now been restored. And it's a reminder that God can use our previous mistakes to counsel others. Right? That whatever mistakes you and I have made along the way, ways that we have not trusted God, God can then use that um, to counsel and encourage others to not do the same thing. There's this interesting point in the story where 
after um, Ruth comes back to Naomi and says, hey, I met this guy named Boaz, and he's letting me not only glean from his field, but he's like letting me pick from the stacks of grain so I can get food a lot easier for us. And Naomi says, that's good. Don't leave. And you got to think Ruth is probably thinking like, why? She says, don't go to anyone else's field. And I was like, why would she, right? I mean, this is clearly the better situation. Why would she leave where she can pick from the stacks and do it under protection? Why would she go to someone else's field, another's field, and glean where she doesn't have those things? And one of the commentators I was reading picked up on this, and he made this, thought it was just an amazing point about this. He said this, this may seem rather an obvious response to such a generous offer. Why would anyone in her right mind not stay in Boaz's field after all his past kindness? Who would go elsewhere? But that is precisely the point. Naomi and Elimelech had displayed exactly that kind of foolish blindness so many years before. They'd ignored the Lord's constant faithful provision in the past to his people and went to someone else's field. Instead of staying in the land that God had promised to his people and trusting in his covenant faithfulness, they went to the fields of Moab in search of greener grasses. So one of the things I love about this is that Naomi is speaking from experience when she tells Ruth, don't turn aside from this. God has clearly provided this for us. It is his blessing for us. It's where he wants us. Don't start getting ideas that there's somewhere else better because it's what she had done. So if you're under your parents' care right now, whether you're 8 or 18, right, I want you to hear this. When your parents encourage you to stay true to God's word, to stay along the straight and narrow, to continue to follow God and not chase after other things that don't honor and please the Lord, it's not because they've never done that. It's because they have. Right? They're sharing that with you, probably in part at least, because they have done that, because they have at some point in their life seen something that didn't honor and please the Lord, decided to go after it anyways. It did not go well for them, and they're telling you, don't do what I did. Stay on this path. Remain faithful to the things God has called us to and put in front of us. So we see that God is using Naomi's lessons that she learned the hard way to pass that knowledge and that advice along to Ruth. And he can do the same for us with the mistakes that we've made. I'm sure there's many in this room who you've made some bad decisions and God has brought you out of that, right? You've repented, you've been redeemed from that, and now you're in a place where you can uniquely be equipped to counsel and encourage others going through that same thing. Another thing this passage shows us is that past mistakes do not disqualify future faithfulness. What Naomi did was clearly an act of faithfulness. She had turned from God. She had stopped trusting him. She had tried to find her path on her own away from God's plan, God's place, and God's people. What she did was a mistake, and it was a sin. And when we as God's people make mistakes and sin, there there are two things that can happen with that. As a result, number one is there can be discipline. God might actually bring bad things into our life like he did at the time of Judges to kind of wake us up, to let us see where that's taking us ahead of time and cause us to repent and come back. He might bring unpleasant things into our lives as an act of loving discipline, like a father disciplines his children, to bring our attention back where it should be. 
Other times, there are just simply consequences to sin, right? That maybe we wouldn't necessarily attribute it to God disciplining us, but because I made this decision, now there's a new reality for me that I have to live in, that I have to walk in because I did that bad thing. And what this passage teaches us is that Naomi, in her present situation, regardless of how she got there and what happened, can still be faithful to God in the future with her life. That her past sins do not disqualify future faithfulness. And if we apply that to our own lives, there's tons of examples we could give. But I want to hit on a few that sometimes we may have a hard time believing these things in these contexts. And one of them is abortion. Statistics would say that there are many in this room who have had an abortion. I don't know it can be tempting for women and men in that situation to think they've committed the unforgivable sin, that because of that there's no future for them. But here's one of the things we can learn from this story is that, yeah, there are consequences to that. Right? There are consequences to that sin, that that was a mistake. But God, right? But God does not leave us in that. Right, That what God wants for us for any sin is to recognize that through the cross, Jesus has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. That we can be fully redeemed and fully restored and walk, not the rest of our lives being sidelined by God for that sin. Right, that There are consequences to sins for, any, for anything, but especially if you think of like breaking the law might want, you know, land you in prison or maybe even in the worst case scenario on death row. But listen, guys, that's the world's economy with how we handle sin and rebellion. In God's economy, there is no life sentence for sin for God's people. There is no sin you can commit that, that God would say, all right, the consequence for that is I could never use you again. That you have no place in the kingdom, that you have no way to be used and be, um, and, and be a part of what he's doing because of that sin. That what God wants for us to respond to our sin, no matter how grave it may seem, is to embrace his forgiveness and redemption, knowing that our past mistakes do not disqualify future faithfulness. We could say the same thing about divorce. There's probably many in this room who you've been divorced, and likely that was due to some sort of sin on your part, part of someone else. And at this point, you have a choice, right? You can allow that to be something that you say, well, I guess I'm off course now. I'm not on the path that God has, has made for me. I've missed it, and he must be done with me. Or you can say and recognize what Naomi did, that regardless of what I've done in the past, God wants me to be faithful in the situation I'm in now. Yes, there are consequences to that, but that doesn't mean I can't be faithful in my present situation. Recognizing that God has forgiven that sin he has cast it as far as the east is from the west, and he wants me to be faithful, and he could even redeem that situation to his glory. We could apply that to financial mismanagement, the situation maybe in because of that. We could apply it to a hundred different things. And it may be that you're in here, that you're in one of those situations right now, that maybe you're in Moab. Maybe you're here and you're not saying, I've returned back and I'm trying to reckon with what that new reality is. Maybe you're still in Moab. You have rebelled against God. You've turned from him and you're still walking in that. And I think what this passage teaches us, if nothing else, is that there's always a path back. Right? Can you imagine Naomi like thinking, how's that going to go? I'm just going to walk into Bethlehem with my Moabite daughter-in-law, an ever-present reminder of my faithlessness and sin. 
standing right next to me. But there was always a path back for her, right? That God and his people were willing to welcome her with open arms despite what she had done. And friends, that's what we want the church to be a place of, right? That regardless of what you or someone has done is that there would always be a place where they could be welcomed back with open arms. And so I just want to leave us with this thought that if that's you, if you ever have those thoughts of like, well, Kai, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand how bad it is. Or you don't understand how many times I've done this. I've been through this cycle of repentance and return a hundred times. I think God is probably done with me by now. Friends, those are, those are lies from the enemy. Those thoughts are not thoughts from God's word and scripture. What scripture teaches us is that no matter how far we've strayed, no matter how far we've gone, there is always a path back that God always has a way for us to return to him where he will welcome us with open arms regardless of what we've done in the past. There's always a path back. And the reason for that is that there was a man who made a similar journey. That he left his heavenly home where he was under the blessing and protection of his father and went to a foreign country, a country in which he did not belong, marred by sin and judgment. And that country was here. When Jesus became one of us, came to us to rescue us and bring us back to his Father through his death on the cross where our sins were paid for once and for all. And friends, you can't invent a sin more powerful than the cross. You can't come up with some sort of act of rebellion or repeat it enough that it has more power than the cross has to forgive all the things we've done if we are trusting and following Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text and the story. Pray that you would use it to bless us, use it to remind us of your faithfulness, of your redemptive work, and to help us to trust that there is always a path back. That we have, can't do anything so vile that there would not be a way for us to be restored and repent to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.